Thank you, Cassie, Pam, Emily. Appreciate that very much. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. May that be true of each and every one of us each and every day. James chapter number 5. James chapter number 5. We are entering into the final sections of this great book. We've been working our way through. I've been praying about where the Lord would uh, have uh, us go next in our uh, study as we expositionally uh, work our way through various books of the Bible and uh, been praying for the Lord's guidance and direction. But for today and Lord willing, next Sunday we will continue to look in the book of James and maybe beyond that. Sometimes uh, more than one sermon comes out of one, one passage. But James chapter 5 and verses 12 through 16 are a passage that I think it's sometimes, this passage is misunderstood. It, it, it's been debated and Bible scholars will sometimes disagree a little bit on the exact uh, nature of the text as far as what God intended, what the message here is for us and for obviously the, the first century church, the context, and then of course by the inspiration and the preservation of God's word for us today. And I want to, with the Lord's help, uh, bring some, uh, some light and shed some light to our understanding of this text and really hopefully make it uh, much more plain and clear. But let's come back to verse number 12, which really comes at the end of the paragraph that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the temporal nature of riches, uh, going uh, all the way back to uh, verse number uh, one in the condemnations of the rich and the powerful for their abuse of their uh, people who were working for them, taking advantage of the poor and the impoverished. And he calls them to repentance. He tells them to weep and to howl and even pronounces a judgment of miseries and judgment that will come upon them. And so we dealt with the temporal nature of riches. And then we looked at the tendency, the tendency of wealth to make one proud. We all here living in America have this tendency because really we are all to some degree rich, spoiled Americans. I know we don't like to think of it that way sometimes, but really we have been benefited and blessed with much. I mentioned last week that the upper percentile, I think it's the upper 25th percentile uh, for the world as far as income, gross income for the year. If you make as little as $10,000 a year, you are considered to be in the upper 25% or, or higher percentile for the world as far as annual income, just making $10,000 a year. There are probably teenagers in our church who make $10,000 a year, and that would put them already in the upper percentile for the world. So we all have to battle this tendency for our wealth, for our riches, for our material prosperity to make us proud. We know rich people who flaunt their wealth, powerful people who use their wealth to abuse and to manipulate and to exploit. We can name politicians who do that quite regularly, and it causes us great disdain. So he deals with the temporal nature of riches, the tendency of wealth to make one proud, and then he also deals with the terror of the actions 
of the rich and the powerful. He talks about the hire of the laborers in verse 4 and how they have reaped down your fields and then they are guilty of keeping back by fraud. And the cries of those laborers, the cries of them which have reaped and their cries have entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of hosts. So there is a particular manipulative, exploitive way that the rich and the powerful have taken advantage of even those who work for them, those who serve them, those who are the common, everyday, average laborers. And we can look all around and we can see that in the government and the culture in which we live and World Economic Forum and all the other examples, but we have to be careful that we too are not guilty. We'll point the fingers at the rich politicians and the powerful and the exploitive, and rightly so. They, they should be pointed out and they will receive their judgment. But we have to be careful that that same kind of attitude, that same kind of spirit doesn't creep into our hearts, into our minds, and the way we treat others. And we come into church and we begin to look down at those who are not as well off or don't have the same status or the same lifestyle or the same image. And as a matter of fact, in James 2, James addresses that because they were giving high praise and even allowing the rich and the powerful who blaspheme their God to receive the lofty seats in the church while the regular average everyday, the poor, materially, but rich in faith, are given the back seats and made to sit on the floor. And he says, you're making celebrities out of those who are rich and powerful but hate your God and despise the truth, but you are looking down upon those who are rich in faith who love God and are faithful in serving him. And he deals with that in James chapter number two. So we've seen the temporal nature of riches, the tendency of wealth to make one proud, the terror of the actions of the rich and powerful. But then in verses seven through 11, we saw the tenacity of believers, this patience, this perseverance, this endurance. The first three uses of the word patience have to do with patience and long suffering toward people, even those who persecute us. And then in the example of Job, he deals with this aspect of patience with a different word that has to do with bearing up, enduring through harsh circumstances. The believers were told to establish their hearts. Be patient, therefore, verse 7, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth. And he gives those examples of the farmer of the prophets and Job, who all endured various types of suffering, whether it be persecution or just trials and tribulation, hard times that came. And they all patiently endured, and they are good examples for us. The farmer who has to wait on God to provide the water, the moisture, to provide the sunlight, to provide the right conditions for the crops to grow, and has to trust the Lord and wait patiently for the fruits. We have to wait on the Lord who is coming, knowing he is going to bring an accounting and he brings with him his rewards. We're waiting on him like a farmer, like a husband, and we're waiting like the prophets who had to endure persecution, who for the truth, for the proclamation of the gospel, suffered for Christ's name, but they endured faithfully. We can think of Elijah, we can think of Jeremiah, Isaiah, many other prophets. Good examples to us. And then Job, 
who for no reason that he could earthly ascertain, for no evil that he had done, not a perfect man, but was a righteous man who eschewed evil, who was faithful to the Lord, and yet everything was taken away from him. His land, his crops, his wealth, his health, his own children. And yet he patiently endured. He would not curse God. He knew that he would one day stand before his Redeemer. And though he tried him, he would come forth as gold. Job is a great example of this tenacity of the believers. So we're told to establish our hearts. Verse number 8, be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. We establish our hearts while waiting patiently for the Lord's return. We hold firm. We hold firm to the promises of God's word. We stay true to biblical convictions. And we are strengthened by God's people within his local church. We patiently endure, trusting the Lord, waiting upon him. We're patient with our persecutors, even though it's hard to do. We pray for them, for our enemies. We bless them that curse us. We do good to them that that despitefully use us and persecute us. Patience with one's persecutors is hard. And patience in bearing up under hard circumstances like Job, it is difficult. But God gives us the grace to do so when we trust him and remain faithful to his word. He gave us again those three examples, the farmer, the prophets, and Job. In the midst of all of these illustrations, and as he wraps up this particular paragraph, but in the middle of those illustrations, in verse number 9, notice we read, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. God is going to hold into account both his enemies, who will be served righteous judgment, justice, but he also will hold us into account for how we have handled the tribulations and the trials, how we have responded to these difficulties. Have we counted all joy? Have we sought the Lord and trusted him and in prayer sought him for wisdom in the midst of our trials? He says, grudge not one against another. Don't resort to griping and complaining in the midst of the persecutions and the trials. Don't resort to griping and complaining and beginning to fight amongst one another. Literally, it has to do with petty differences. And don't we get caught up that way? Friendly fire? How many times have we seen a ball team that's clicking get into some sort of squabble on the sideline or in the clubhouse, in the locker room, and it destroys the team chemistry, and they can be superstars, all-stars, and they collapse because they fight over petty differences. How many times have churches split? How many times have marriages split because of petty differences, grudging against one another, griping and complaining and turning on each other instead of trusting the Lord, instead of patiently enduring like the farmer does, like the prophets, like Job. So we're warned about this kind of griping and complaining spirit, even this petty differences of holding grudges against one another, this bitter spirit that can destroy us 
and prevent us from having established hearts and patiently enduring. But then he comes down to verse 12 and he says, but above all things, he, he comes down to verse 12 and he says, having said all this, hear me out here. I have something, one, I have one more thing in this section I need to say, I need to get across very clearly. James does by the inspiration of God. He says, above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. He warns us about making empty promises while we wait for the coming of the Lord. We can be guilty of foxhole prayers during tough times. God, if you get me out of this, I will obey you. I will serve you faithfully all of my days. And then when we get out of the hard time, the persecution is lifted, God brings us through, and the things, things get better, what do we do? Hmm. I mean, I can go back to the way I used to do things, and uh, we just sort of forget about God, don't we? We begin to practice practical atheism once again. We go back to this moralism, and we begin to ignore God, and we forget the promises we made, the vows that we made. God, I'll serve you if you bring me through this. God, if you deliver me, I will love you and serve you all my days. I'll, I'll, I'll always be in church. I'll find a place to serve. I, I will love like I should as a father or, or, or as a mother. I will be a good father to my children, a good mother to my children. I'll be a good spouse. I'll be a good employee. I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. Just get me out of this mess. And things get good. Things get kind of easy again. And we forget the vows, the promises, and we're guilty of breaking a vow that we made to God, breaking a promise. Our yea has not been nay, and our nay has not been nay. We're guilty of these foxhole prayers. We have to be careful. So in verse 12, there is yet another warning about our speech, isn't there? As James has often addressed our speech, he addresses this speech of false promises, of empty promises, of vows that we make hypocritically, lying hypocritical oaths. So in the context of waiting patiently on the Lord, we see this warning in verse 12 against hypocritical, deceptive speech in the midst of challenging circumstances. To keep our alliteration with the letter T, I'm going to refer to this as the trickery of speech. The trickery of speech. These hypocritical, deceptive types of speech, empty promises, false promises, oaths, vows that we never intend to keep, or that we make them in the hard times and we don't keep them when things get better. In a parallel passage in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, we see a similar warning. And it's very possible that James is even alluding to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ even addresses this very same topic. Matthew 5, verse 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. He's making a reference back to the Old Testament law. Leviticus 19 and verse 12. And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name 
of thy God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30 in verse 2, if a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Repeated in Deuteronomy 23 in verse 23, that which is gone out of thy lips shalt thou keep and perform even a free will offering according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, by the inspiration of God, says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. So as Jesus addresses this topic in the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing this hypocritical, deceptive speech. Vows that are made in the name of the earth, in the name of the sun, and the sky, and the moon, but not made unto the Lord. As if the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the hypocrites could say, well... I can break my promises. I don't have to keep my word. I can lie and I can deceive because I didn't say it in the name of the Lord. What's he dealing with? He's dealing with a heart issue. They could say certain things with their mouth and they could teach for doctrines the commandments of men. They could have this legalistic apparatus set up external to make themselves look good, but they were whited sepulchers full of dead man's bones. They didn't mean what they said. They were making empty promises. They were liars. They were deceivers. They had full intention of saying all these wonderful things and making all these promises when they really never intended to keep them. It was all about manipulation and exploitation. And he goes on in Matthew 5, Jesus does, to deal with this topic. And he continues from Matthew 5 and verse 33 into this with a little bit more detail. Matthew 5 and verse 34, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black." But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on the New Testament, he says it this way. It appears from this passage, as well as from the ancient writings of the Jewish rabbis, that while they professed outwardly in adherence to the law, they had introduced a number of, of oaths in common conversation. Oaths by which they by no means considered as binding. For example, they would swear by the temple, by the head, by heaven, by earth, so as long as they kept from swearing by the name Jehovah, and so long as they observed the oaths publicly taken, they seemed to consider all others as allowable and allowedly broken. Hypocritical speech, deceptive speech, lying He says, persecution might come, trials come. We're told to patiently endure, to not grudge against one another, to not be caught up in petty differences. We're to establish our hearts, 
And you know what will ruin us in difficult times? Deceptive hearts, lying, empty promises, false commitments. Lord, I'm going to serve you. It's, it's tough right now, and you know that I'm committed to you, and I will if you just get me through this. But really, we don't mean it. Going into the trial, sadly, many times going into the trial, we had no faithfulness and no commitment. Maybe the trial was to get us to think about our commitment, to think about our sin. Maybe it's to purge and to prune us and to help us in our walk with God and to strengthen our faith. Or maybe it's to cause us to do some inspection of our lives, to examine ourselves and to see if there's some things that we truly need to fix. But do we really mean it? Or do we just speak empty words? Do we offer up empty prayers? Do we make deceptive oaths and false promises? Our speech must not be deceptive, hypocritical, or dishonest. We must not boast about what we don't really know. We must not tell lies to cover ourselves, to take advantage of others, or to try to make ourselves look or sound better than we really are. Have you ever met somebody who always has to insert themselves into a conversation? You know, you're telling a story, you're giving some sort of example, and they always have to insert themselves into the conversation, and they can always one-up whatever is going on in the conversation. If you've done something, they've done it more, or they've done it better. They have a way of exaggerating and embellishing whatever happened to them, and even if it never happened to them, they'll just flat-out lie to make it sound like they have a better story, they have a better example, they are better at this. They can outdo anything that we ever did or that we ever talk about. I've been around those kinds of people. They get really annoying, don't they? Because it just seems like they always have to make it about themselves. You know, we make empty promises. We make false commitments. We exaggerate and embellish. Can we just call it what it really is? Lying? We promise God things. We promise our family. What about commitments in the married relationship? We make a commitment before God and men. We make a covenant before God and men. Do we break that promise, that covenant, over the slightest things? We just fell out of love. We fell in, so we fell out. We just don't feel that way. Irreconcilable differences. Don't we hear that a lot now? Superstars who, celebrities who 10 years in, 5 years into a marriage, and they have what seems like the greatest marriage. They have all the money. They have all the fame. They have all the fortune. Seems like everything is going great, and then there's a big blow up, and sometimes it's followed by what, the paparazzi, <laughs> the news media. And then it comes down to you read through the paragraph, and we can read between the lines, right? Though they have all this money, they have all this beauty, they have all this fame, they have all this fortune, all this popularity, they're unhappy because they don't know the Lord many times, and their commitment meant nothing. It was an empty promise. Sometimes we see it among those who profess to be Christians. And again, I'm not here. I'm not trying to be condemning or judgmental. Some of you have been through a divorce, and I am not trying to be harsh about this. 
I just want us to set up God's ideal and God's standard. And those who have been through divorce, you know how difficult it has been. I've seen it in homes. I've seen it with children in schools. I've seen it in ministries. I've seen the consequences of that. And I'm not trying to be hard or harsh. But is not the oath of a marriage commitment something that we are supposed to keep for a lifetime? Now it has been broadened and generalized to the point that now polymory in same-sex marriage is becoming the norm. Where now people are entering into polymorous relationships and as long as it's consensual among adults and everybody is open and communicative, then it's okay. That's nonsense. God set a limiting principle. One man, one woman for life. And God still hates divorce. Is that just an empty promise? Is it just a social contract? What about when it comes to debt? Do we fulfill our promises? Or do we expect the current administration to bail us out? Now, there are times where we're providentially hindered and we have to go to the Lord and we have to beg and we have to plead for the Lord to help and to do miracles. And he will often do that. But how many times is it because we don't want to rein in our spending or live according to a certain lifestyle and we want to have extravagant debt that we never intend to keep? I remember being as a school principal dealing with kids and their parents and tuition. And I remember we had a huge school bill and I was going after the the parents. I was trying to be as kind as I could and gracious as I could. They'd put a penny here and a penny there and a dime here and a dime there. And and eventually they went into bankruptcy and I got a letter from the bankruptcy service and it said you have to write off the rest of their tuition. We had to eat thousands of dollars in tuition. And as she came in and she signed off on some paperwork or gave us the letter or whatever, she drove away in a nice convertible Ford Mustang. And I thought, can't keep the commitment to pay the tuition, but you can drive off in your nice Ford Mustang. I'm not, again, trying to be overly harsh or or, or condemning, because I know there are extreme and unusual circumstances. But do we fail to keep our promises with our money? Signing contracts that we don't ever intend to fulfill and getting ourselves in debt and not paying and expecting the next generation or grandma and grandpa or the current administration to bail us out and then accusing everybody who doesn't bail us out as being harsh and cruel. What about our commitments? James is not saying that life doesn't get difficult, that persecution doesn't come, that trials don't come. But again, he's coming back to who are we trusting? Who are we depending on? Empty promises, hypocritical oaths, deceptive speech, lies, false commitments, empty promises. What do they ultimately reveal? That we're depending and trusting in ourselves. We can do it on our own. We don't need God. He's just there as a fire extinguisher for a crisis. God, get me out. Be my safety net to get me back on my feet, and then I'm going to do my own thing. That's ultimately what James is addressing. Who do we trust? Where is our faith? So we see the trickery of speech. 
One example from the New Testament, we addressed this this morning in our Sunday school hour, in our giving, the principles of giving, there was in Acts chapter 5, a false commitment, an empty promise of giving to the church, of meeting the needs of those in the church through a formal promise, an oath, a vow before God to give a certain amount, and they kept back part of the price, and God used Ananias and Sapphira as believers in the church, as examples in the early days of the church, when he struck them dead for violating their oath before God, for holding back a part of the price and lying. He says, lest you fall into condemnation, verse number 12. James does not hold back, does he? These are convicting passages. But James was writing these truths by the inspiration of God because God knew that not only they needed them, but every generation throughout history has needed them because we all are sinners and come short of the glory of God. And we all have these, these tendencies. We all, all have this default mechanism to depend on ourselves, to do things our way, to make empty promises, to try to lie our way out of situations, to manipulate and to exploit. He knows that that is our sinful nature, our tendency. And we have to check it by the truth of the word of God, by allowing the conviction of the Holy Spirit and allowing God's word and through the work of the Holy Spirit to change us, to change our mind about these things and to live in faith and trust and obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. So this trickery of speech. And then we see, secondly, that instead of this trickery of speech, instead of these lies and deceptive empty promises and false oaths and false promises, we should be people of prayer. We should be people of prayer to keep the alliteration trust. Trust exercised through prayer. Notice now in verse 13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing Psalms. This word afflicted is the general word for suffering. It has to do with being in trouble. It has to do with suffering of any kind, suffering ill. What are we told in James 1 and verse number 5 in the midst of our trials that are with purpose, that we're to count all joy, that we have to change our mind about how we view the trial and consider it? Joy as of the Lord, that he has a purpose in it. What are we told to do? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What should suffering do? It should take us to prayer. It should put us on our knees. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Prayer ultimately shows our trust is in the Lord. Our faith is in him. So, affliction, suffering. And then he says... Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. The idea of merry has to do with being cheerful, happy, full of praise. Literally, it means to play on a stringed instrument. Let him sing psalms. Let him play on a stringed instrument. Okay? Not many of us can do that, probably. I don't know. Emily does a great job playing on a stringed instrument. You realize the piano is a stringed instrument, right? It has 
It has uh, chords, um, strings inside. We even have a new member to our church. We have an organ that was given to us free. And uh, some of the men of the church were able to pick it up and, and bring it here, and we're going to use that to enhance our, our music ministry. But when we're happy, when we're joyful, the, the point isn't to just go out and live lavishly for ourselves. It's to sing psalms. It's to play on a stringed instrument. What is the idea? It's to praise the Lord. When things are going well, praise the Lord. Give him the credit. Give him the glory. But even when we are afflicted, when we're suffering, what are we to do? We're to pray. Pray and praise. I think we all could do a lot more. I know I could do a lot better in both those areas. There's always room for improvement in our prayer life and in our praise life, isn't there? And this is the right kind of praise. This is praise according to the truth. That's the idea of the stringed instrument. Praying and praising, excuse me, praising with an orderliness and a truthfulness, with a design. Psalms is referenced. According to the truth, clean hands, pure hearts, and the principles of proper worship. But in our good times, in the happy times, in the cheerful times, praise the Lord, give the glory, give the credit to Him. In our times of suffering, trust Him. Live by faith. This word here, Mary, in verse 13, is actually only used four times in the entire New Testament. It's not used a whole lot. But it's always used in reference to true, genuine praise and exaltation of the Lord in the right way, in the right spirit, with the right motive. And then we come down to verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This verse has caused a lot to uh, debates. Scholars have taken this passage and, and, and they have put it under a microscope. And I've read some various commentaries and I've heard sermons on this passage. And I'm going to do my best to explain, with the Lord's help, in the few minutes that we have left, what... what I believe that God intended in this message from his word in verses 14 through 16. This word sick in the Gospels, in the original language in the Gospels, it is used to refer, yes, to physical illness. But in Acts and in the epistles, it is used as a general word for weakness, to be weary, even specifically in context to refer to weak faith, or a weak conscience. We could go to Acts 20 and verse 35, Romans 6 and verse 19, Romans 14 and verse 1, and 1 Corinthians 8 and verses 9 through 12 to see where it is referencing a weakness of faith, a weakness of conscience, or a, just a general word for weakness. So it is not necessarily specifically a reference to physical illness. Though physical illness may be contributing to the weakness, to the weariness. People who are suffering, people who are in persecution, grow weary, don't we? It can be overwhelming, stressful. There can be a weakness, there can be a weariness. So James is going to further this argument. In verse 14, we see that there's to... The call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. But verse 15, notice, in the prayer of faith shall save the sick, this weary one, this weak one, 
And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that we may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What is the theme that James is really emphasizing? Prayer. How we need to pray for one another. How we need to come together in our times of affliction, of suffering, of persecution. How we need to comfort one another, pray for one another, confess our faults one to another. Come together as an assembly of believers, as a church, as a church family. And encourage and strengthen one another. Yes, the elders of the church are called. And the sick in verse 15 that we just read there, and the prayer of the faith shall save the sick, is literally the one who is sick. And actually it is a different Greek word from earlier, but it is literally the word for one who is weary. It still has the idea of weariness, of weakness. The sick, the one who is sick, is the one who is weary, the one who is faltering, the one who is struggling under the sickness, the illness, the suffering, the affliction that is causing this Weakness, this weariness. And he uses, the author of the book of Hebrews, by the inspiration of God, uses the same word in Hebrews 12 and verse number 3. And the whole point is, in verse 14, the calling of the elders of the church is for what purpose? To anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and to offer up the prayer of faith in verse 15. So the elders of the church are called. Now, can we make it a formal ceremony? Sure. There are times where I get a text, I get a phone call, I get an email. Sometimes in our Wednesday night prayer meeting, someone will speak up and there is a call. In this case, um, as the pastor, the pastor is the elder, bishop is the office, elder is the man, pastor is the work of the shepherding of the, of the ministry. Okay, Same person, same man. Three different terms. So am I made aware and do I pray? Yes. I bring that to our church family in the form of prayer requests. We have a prayer list. Sometimes we have to use unspoken because we don't need to know all the details. But the elders of the church, the leadership of the church is made aware. But then notice what we read there in verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. We see two of the one another principles right here. That ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Is it only the elder or the elders of the church who are have to have the effectual fervent prayer? No, it's everyone. We're all to have that fervent, effective, faithful prayer life. For one another and confessing our faults. You know what that affliction and that suffering sometimes does? It causes us, as we do some inspection and self-examination, it may cause us to say to a brother or sister in Christ, you know, I've been struggling. Can you pray for me about this? It may cause us to go to our brother or sister in Christ and say, please forgive me. God has taught me through this. I need to get this made right. You ever stubbed a toe? <laughs> You're walking through the house and you bang your, your foot, your toe, bang a knee, and you cry out in pain. Does it ever occur that maybe we at that moment should pray and say, Lord, 
you just made me stub my toe for a reason. You have a reason for that. Maybe you want me to think about something here. When we go through affliction, when we go through trial, we talked about humility in the men's Bible study yesterday. And we had to be transparent. Questions were asked. We were talking back and forth. It was a humbling thing, but it was good for us as men. We have to listen to our wives. We have to listen to our children. We have to listen to those who maybe we don't like. And as the body of Christ, we come together. And we put our arms around each other. We kneel together and pray. We share our requests. And we confess our faults. Does that mean we air out all of our dirty laundry? Back when I was five years old, I was in the backyard. And do we, we get into all the dirty laundry? It's not about that. But if we have... Something against a fellow brother. We get it fixed. We get it right. We offer forgiveness and we receive forgiveness. We get things right with each other and we pray for one another. Genuinely, not just lip service, I'm praying for you, but we take the list out and we pray for one another. I mean, we go through the directory and we pray for one another. Sometimes I'll pray and I literally, I am going up this side of the auditorium and I'm coming back down the other. Sometimes it's with the directory, sometimes it's with the prayer list. Sometimes it's just simply a text message or someone texts me and says, I got this going on. I'm getting ready to go into a a, a tough meeting. I'm getting ready to minister to a family, uh, a family member, praying for one another, reaching out to one another, taking time to get engaged in other people's lives, taking the time not to be gossips and backbiters and slanderers, but getting involved in people's lives. And you know what? When we get involved in people's lives, not in the wrong way, but in the right way, I understand it gets messy, doesn't it? But are we going to be like the world to just live our relationships on superficial levels and not ever get to the real heart of the matter and truly pray for one another and help bear each other's burdens and confess our faults and come together in true spiritual bonds as brothers and sisters in Christ. I mentioned this week, Carlos Rubio is going to be on the Amazon River sharing the gospel in little villages in Peru. We have a chance to be a partner with him and praying for him. He's had some health issues in the last year. Let's pray for him this week. Shalom Ministries, Craig Hartman, I cannot imagine all that they are dealing with in Israel right now. People that they know who are in the middle of the war, A hostage that they knew personally that I don't know what their whereabouts is right now. There are needs in our church family. Can we have a formal ceremony? That's really not the emphasis here. The rubbing of the oil can be metaphorically just referring to either physical medicine or just simply the comfort and the encouragement and the strengthening of The church family, specifically, yes, the elders, but the church family coming together and praying for one another. Yes, there can be an official laying on of the hands, but the emphasis is not so much in the ceremony, but it is upon the actual prayer, the effectual, fervent prayer, the caring and the compassionate care and concern for one another. We don't get that anywhere else. We can have the various social clubs, and I'm not saying that there's something wrong about those social clubs. But the social clubs don't meet us at our spiritual needs. I, I, I enjoyed Little League. I love Little League. I'm going to miss baseball this spring. 
I already miss it. <laughs> you know, it's sad, but I, I, I get you know, a little teary-eyed because I, I, I miss my kids. And I think about it, my memories pop up, and you know, there's Chandler and Eric and Josiah playing Little League Baseball. You know, the, the video, you know how it is on Google Photos or one of your memories, they pop up and there's a, there's a, a, a game that they're playing. But you know what, as much as I enjoyed all the camaraderie, that baseball team and all that fun, it didn't meet my spiritual needs. My church did. My brothers and sisters in Christ. The people that we confess our faults to one another, that we love, that we go through the hard times with, that we serve with, and we serve alongside, and we minister to. That's what James is about. This is what James is really dealing with here. We need each other's strengthening, comfort, and counsel. And sometimes that counsel hurts. And sometimes that confession involves getting right with one another. But the point is that when we do that, what happens? And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick. It shall strengthen the weak and the weary. It will encourage them. It will help them. As a matter of fact, there might be sins in verse 15 that they have committed and they shall be forgiven. What is the ultimate focus that James brings that the prayers do? They strengthen the weak. And it might even mean that a person who is not right with God, who is involved in sin, that we have reached out to, that we have with concern, with biblical compassion and counsel and confrontation and prayed for genuinely, they get right with God. Their sins are confessed. They, 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 they get reestablished in their relationship with the Lord. And they begin serving the Lord again. And they begin doing God's will. There is a great joy in that. There is no greater joy than to see our children walk in truth. And for a pastor, there is no greater joy than to see God's people walk in truth, to grow together and love together and pray for one another and see sins forgiven and see lives made right and relationships restored and see the gospel proclaimed and the kingdom of God advanced and God's people dwelling together in unity and how good and how pleasant it is good it is for God's people, brethren, to dwell together in unity. And that is where we come to as we close today. That this healing, not that it be such an emphasis on physical healing, because that's really not what James' emphasis is. Because ultimately, where, will, where ultimately will our physical healing take place? In heaven. Not that there aren't prayers that result in miracles in people's lives where there is healings. Not necessarily the elders coming and with me with some sort of spiritual power hitting people on the head so they go into convulsions and they walk out healed. I don't think that's what, at all what James is talking about. It's not miraculous power of church leaders. Yes, the apostles had the signs and the gifts of the apostles, but that went away with the last apostle when John died in around AD 90. It's not this laying on of hands with some sort of spiritual miracle working power. In some charismatic Pentecostal, sorry, I don't mean to be a, a general broad stroking here with what I'm saying, but you know what I'm talking about. The televangelists, the, the charismatics who do the slain in the spirit stuff on the platforms and all that kind of stuff, okay? Choreographed miracle healings. Not talking about that. It's the idea of the elders coming. And yes, 
there might be a physical illness that is healed by God. But what's the emphasis? They're strengthened in their faith, in their walk with God, maybe even made right with the Lord. That is what James is ultimately about, that our relationship with God be right, and our relationship with God and with others be right, so that we can truly pray for one another, Confess our faults one to another and comfort and encourage and strengthen one another as we, as a righteous man, as a righteous woman, as a righteous person, effectively, fervently pray for one another. May that be true of each and every one of us this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these tremendous truths. Lord, we need so desperately the care and concern, the encouragement, the counsel, even sometimes the confrontation of other, brother, other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may we live out as a church family this very truth that James wrote by the inspiration of God that you preserve for us today, that we will have effectual, fervent prayer strengthening the hands of the weak, ministering to those who are struggling. Help us, Lord, to lift them up. And Lord, help each of us to examine our own hearts and see if there is some area, some way in which we need to confess our faults in such a way that we get right with you and that we live for you. Lord, help us to maybe even be reaching out to others this week, to be praying for one another. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. If there's someone here today who does not know you as their Savior, who cannot experience this truth and live this out because they don't know you as their Savior, Lord, today may they confess their sins and turn to you in saving faith. Lord, strengthen us as believers to be faithful in these areas, to be praying for one another, to encourage and to help one another in our walk with you, that we might faithfully live for you, obediently serve you, and do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jake is going to come and lead us in our closing hymn, 313, 313, if we'll stand.